Welcome to the Business of Property podcast. I'm Simon. And I'm Stuart. We're both property people running our own businesses. This podcast is just us chatting, as we often do, about anything and everything property. We're going to start this week by mentioning that we've been chatting to someone else about property. And, and this, this person was kind enough to then, then write about our conversations. Stuart, would you like to, to elaborate a little bit more on what I'm, what I'm hinting at here? Yes, well, we've we finally made it to the big time, didn't we, Simon? We we made it into the Times, the national newspaper, not our local version, but the the Times, and we are in the bricks and mortar section, which printed a couple of weeks ago now, but still online. All around the key question for a lot of people, which is, should I invest in a buy to let property in twenty twenty two? And both Simon and myself had a conversation with the writer of the article, Carol Lewis, and she's put uh, quite a lot of our views in there. So uh, if anyone didn't see that in the printed paper, you can still go online and view it. It is behind a paywall, but there is a, I believe it's a 30-day free trial period, which I have used myself. And yeah, we're still there and we'll put a link into the show notes so that people can go and see that. But more than it just being about us, it does actually raise some interesting points around buy to let. And particularly, it talks about some of the best performing rental spots for yield, Simon, which, uh, which is a table which is on the, on the article, both online and offline. Yeah, they picked up just the, I think it's top 10 or so actually in the printed paper. But the, the source for, for that, you actually went and found. And we'll include a link to that as well in, in the show notes. And it's from Track Capital. They're, they've put together a, a yield map of the, the UK, maybe just England, not sure, but, but somewhere around that. And I should probably actually just, just quickly mention that while this is a, a static map that they've, they've made for a, a period of time, Patma does actually have a live yield map that you can go in and, and explore and scroll around and zoom in and out of for different areas. To, to find out sort of the, the current yields that you might be able to expect based on real property listings and rental figures that, that are, are available at the moment. But anyway, small advert aside, looking through this table, the, the bigger table, you managed to spot Stuart that Red Hill is listed, although it's actually listed as RH13, which is a Red Hill postcode, but it's not quite Red Hill, is it? No, well, RH13 is Horsham, but Red Hill as a as a sector was in there as well for the bottom. For that was in the bottom twenty five areas, I believe. And you're right; it is the it's, it's the UK, so it covers Wales and Scotland as well. And uh, just just key ones to pull out for those listening was Nottingham, Bradford, and Manchester coming up the top. And it should be mentioned that these are postcodes; it's based on postcodes. But interesting that Nottingham and Bradford are coming up top. In fact, two Nottingham postcodes coming at top but as Simon said you know in the worst 25 postcodes by yield unsurprisingly coming in the south and, and the, the the worst performing the highest worst performing if that makes sense was Guildford but then as we look through it actually yes it is Red Hill coming up as RH13 but that's coming up as a Horsham postcode but interesting that Red Hill given that Simon and I both come from there was was on the list and of course I'm looking to invest in Red Hill at the moment as well and their estimated yield for, for RH13, which, as we said, is not actually quite Red Hill, is 2.5%. And I certainly hope to get a bit better than that investing in, in actual Red Hill. 
or, or maybe just surrounding areas of Red Hill. But, uh, but yes, I, I hope I managed to do a bit better than their their yield estimate for for the Horsham area. Yeah, and as always, there'll be this would be based on the the averages for the area, and and it's interesting just on the properties that you have looked at, and I know you don't specifically look at yield as a as a first metric to entry, but of the properties you've looked at, what sort of yields were were they coming out at? They're fairly wide ranging. So I would say three percent up to sort of six percent might be the the top end of the yield that you you might see. So it's a fa- fairly wide ranging, and then depending on how much refurbishment work you need to do for that before it's rentable, obviously then varies the ROI because you you can have a a much cheaper property, and hence the yield calculation will come up quite high. But you might need a, a much higher spend on the refurbishment, which would reduce your your ROI. So, so yeah, the the yields can be quite wide range, wide ranging. But I don't think I've really been looking at anything as low as two point five percent. Although, having said that, that might just be because those those considerations would include much larger properties and things like that, which I just don't look at at all for for investment purposes. Yeah, and also just looking at yield is. As we know from our conversations, for me, it's just a first sort of rule of thumb about whether or not I'm interested in a property. However, there are so many other factors that we would consider in terms of cash flow, capital appreciation, and so on, that you know, the, the yield isn't the be all and end all. But it is quite interesting to see, you know, in the list and Guildford clearly not the place to invest if you're looking for a straightforward in- investment because it appears there's quite a few postcodes of Guildford that appear in there, which is no surprise given where it is. And it's it's fairly local to us where we are. And of course, London will appear several times. And Hemel Hempstead, although I'm not sure who's looking to invest in Hemel Hempstead, doubt they're listening to this podcast. Probably got uh, other other things to listen to. Yeah, so the the worst yield in Guildford is 1.9% they reckon for this. So so that, that's fairly low, especially when you consider the the best yield from this chart in Nottingham, NG7 specifically, is 11.3%. So uh, it's a big, big range from best to worst. Yeah, and I'm not sure because I ha- haven't looked at the details behind this or whether or not they're available in terms of, of where it comes from. But of course, given postcodes like Nat- Nottingham and Bradford, Manchester, depending on proximity to you know universities or places of work will obviously change that yield if they're you know, houses in multiple occupation so it yeah so it's um some something that needs to be considered as well because my my view on these sort of tables is usually that they're looking at what i would consider a sort of vanilla buy to let strategy and just gives you a good indication of that yeah, it's it's a little bit hard to tell from the well what they've listed as average asking rent per month. So looking at these numbers, my guess would be that in most areas this is vanilla buy to let. And all they've done is, is taken the average asking rent and the average asking price for sales and, and divided one by the other as appropriate to, to create your yield. And that, that's where they've got the yield figure from. Mm. So, so yeah, it's, it's really all about working out the the average asking rent and the average asking price, 
feeding into the, that calculation as to to how how real these yields actually are. Yeah, it's always interesting to have a look, even if they're not super accurate. Yeah, I mean, looking at it actually, I mean, I think the Nottingham and a couple of the ones below, including Yorkshire, are possibly based on uh, HMO properties based on that uh, asking rent because it's yeah surpasses what I would expect in the south of London for a couple. So I'm, I think that they that you know that that those numbers are coming in. So wh- where they're getting that asking from, we don't know, but it seems like they they're taking it off. I, I'm not convinced. I mean, may, maybe they're varying it by area, but that would seem a bit messy because looking at the Red Hill figure, it. I mean, their their average asking rent listed is 965, and this is obviously not actually Red Hill. It's Horsham, but Horsham is actually I would expect to be a, a slightly more expensive area than Red Hill, and that that rent is definitely not a multiple occupation rent. That's a a, a sort of average probably two bed type rental situation so so yeah i i wonder if perhaps it's looking at or, or distorted by different kinds of properties in the sales market versus the rental market in these areas so for example perhaps in rh13 there are a few blocks of flats which are heavily rented and that that's skewing the rental figure down whereas most of the sales take place for bigger houses, which are nearby these flats or something, but in a, another street or so away, but still in the same postcode area, and, and hence pulling the figures around in a slightly distorted way. Anyway, yeah, we don't really know, so we probably shouldn't spend the entire podcast analysing figures in, in a table that we didn't create and we don't uh, know the background of. <laughs> But the bottom line is, you know, we we made it into the times. We're we're in the big time now, so please do leave us a rating or review. Just by way of just just consider it like a like, a social mention, you know, just to give this uh, podcast a, a rating or a review, just to help us further get the message out there. And the message is that you know we we want to just share more information and help other people make better informed decisions when it comes to investing in property. On which note, Simon, we were also talking about pre-podcast the looming tax deadline. Tax deadline? I, I don't know what you're talking about. What, what, what's that? <laughs> well, it's something you've mentioned because it's something I tend to hand over to to my accountant, and then he mentions it to me on a daily basis. Yep. So, uh, just for anyone who doesn't know, if you're a property investor and and therefore a, a landlord. You almost certainly there there are some some small edge cases, but you almost certainly need to register for self assessment, and this means you have to fill in a tax return every year at the end of the tax year, which happens at the beginning of April. From that point through to the thirty first of January, is your sort of window for completion of your your tax return for the the previous tax year, and of course. We are approaching the end of January, so we are approaching that deadline. This particular year, HMRC have decided to be a little bit lenient on charging fees for late filing and late payment. If you miss the end of January, you can go into February, and HMRC have said they'll be a bit lenient. I'm not entirely sure on whether they're going to drop all fees and all interest and things, or just just the, the worst bits. <laughs> but yeah, basically, end of January, you need to get your tax return in. 
And hence, I have spent this last weekend doing my tax return because for some strange reason, I do my own tax return. It's something I've done for probably 20 years or so because I've been self-employed for a long time prior to, actually, no, probably not prior to being a property investor. Maybe, maybe actually the property was the thing that started me doing self-assessments. Well, it might have come that way around, thinking about it. But anyway, I've been doing self-assessments for a long, long time. And every year, I collect together my figures. I work out the, the, the details that I need to provide. I reread lots of information about individual fields in the self-assessment tax return to try and remind myself what on earth they're talking about. And, and I fill in the figures. But you do this rather differently, don't you, Stuart? I do. And you, you've touched on it a little bit there in terms of you, you doing your own and why it happened. But why, why do you continue to do it yourself? Is it because you know what to do and it's, and it's simple? I think mostly I'm a control freak. <laughs> um, if, if I hand this over to anyone else, I, I would worry that there's going to be a detail missed. And not, I don't necessarily mean that the person I hand it over to will, will miss a detail or get something wrong. I mean, that the, the, the whole process, so obviously they, they need to know the information from me at some point. So I would need to provide all that information and then they would need to do their work to it and, and put it all together in an appropriate way and pass it to HMRC. But as I look through the tax return, I see a different section and you sort of read, read through and say, yes, I've, I've got property and yes, I've got a, a limited company and yes, I've got a sole tradership or, or dividends or whatever. And then you say, oh, and and gift aid. Oh, yes, yes, I, I, do, I have made some charitable gifts, so I do need to claim gift aid as well. But perhaps I would have forgotten to do that if, if there was an interface with an accountant sort of going on there. I don't know. Maybe the maybe accountants are very good at being super thorough at asking for, for everything. But that, I think, perhaps is a question for you, Stuart, because you, you do go through that experience. Well, what's really interesting is we both do different things for the same reason. The reason I use an accountant is because I don't want to miss anything. <laughs> <laughs> and particularly when I look at the forms, I, I just look at them and it, it it's just like watching a million numbers on a sheet. And, and my, my concern is that I miss a box or I don't tick a box I should tick. And then that leads me into problems. So it's quite it's quite interesting that we both have that desire and, and have come to different ways of dealing with it. And I suppose that's that's life, isn't it? In terms of in terms of what how we how we approach things. And I think I, I started using an accountant, so it would have been so we, we were the typical accidental landlords, my wife and I. And what became apparent was that obviously we, we had my wife had lived in the property and then we moved out of the property and for for a couple of years we we rented it as you know part of our well just just as a, a flat that she'd moved out of and what became clear was that we needed to be more overt about the the rent and everything coming through and to kick that process off I wanted to speak with an accountant because what I didn't want to do was for in in a few years you know, following that, that the tax man would come come after me. So I just wanted to lay everything on the table and just say, right, this is where we're at. How, how do we make sure that we are covered and, and we're doing everything as we legally should? So I sort of kind of sought that advice. And I suppose once our accountant had done that for us, it just felt 
easier to 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 give the work to to the accountants but what was interesting when we were talking pre-record and you were talking about what we needed to hand to the accountant uh, it did make me realize well I do fill in spreadsheets so so to be clear so obviously we have pers- properties in personal names as in both my wife and I then we have properties in a limited company then a consultancy business and then a company that wraps around all of those things so there are some technicalities and how we share losses with from one business to another business all obviously as it should be done but when it comes to just the personal properties actually every year I just go into a spreadsheet and I have to go through all of my invoices and receipts and I just put those in the spreadsheet but for the property for the limited company the bookkeeping was something I employed somebody else to do outside of the accountants and anything that was spent or used would go through our software management system. We use Zero. You, you can use uh, GetAgent or any others. And, you know, so that's how we did it. So that's kind of what I do. And I suppose my fear is that if I step back away from that, so I do my, I'm going to start doing my bookkeeping now. But my fear is if I step away now, then again, I'll run the risk of omitting something I should actually include. Yeah, I, I feel I should clarify a little bit on on my situation. So I currently don't have any properties held in a limited company, but I do have um, a limited company. In fact, I have a couple. I have one that I part own that I used to do consultancy with, and I have another one which is creating Patma and maybe a couple of things, but, but its main focus is Patma. And for the limited company, I don't try to do those accounts myself. I, I do employ an accountant and they they put those details together. They, they track them in one of the, the popular general accountancy software tools and and they, they handle those processes as a, a CT600, I think, which is the, the corporation tax return that has to be done every year. And, and that is significantly more confusing i think is the word i would use than self-assessment tax and self-assessment tax is it makes very little sense in many places but the the corporation tax makes even less sense so so that is something i have decided to to not do myself but for for me personally then i have income from limited companies i have income from a sole tradership company that i have as well and then i have income from personally held properties and then of course because you're filling in your self-assessment, you've got little bits of income as well. So interest on savings or interest on angel loans, for example, that all needs to go in. Perhaps you've made a, a profit from uh, shares, that, that needs to go into a self-assessment. If you've given money to charity, you can make you can include your gift aid details on there, which will help reduce things. If you're part of a couple with children and you're receiving child benefit payments, then that needs to go in there because it, depending on how much you earn, it can change your, your tax. So there's, there are lots of different bits that you need to go into a, a tax return. And I quite like going through the tax return and saying, oh, yes, that applies. No, that doesn't apply. Oh, hang on, let me just spend 10 minutes reading this description to work out whether this applies or not. But but at least then I know. I, I know that I have actually thought about all the different bits that apply for a personal tax return. I just want to highlight the words you've just said there. 
I like going through the tax return. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm just underscoring that for both ourselves and the listener because I, I mean, I'm putting myself out on a limb here, but listener, please do reach out to us at the Biz of Property to confirm whether or not you too would enjoy going for a tax return. Please don't send too much hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, perhaps that was a slight slip of the tongue, but but I, I no, I mean, I feel reassured by having actually gone through it and, and checked these things. And it does take time. It it does take some reading every year because I only do it once a year, and I can't remember what half of the terms and fields and descriptions and things are. But but it is reassuring. I mean. Your accountant, who does your um, self-assessment, Stuart, they ask you to fill in a spreadsheet for your properties. But how do they get all these these other bits of information? How do they get your dividend records, for example, from your your limited company? Do you, do you have to send them copies of your? Uh, I can't remember the, what the word is, but you get you get a a piece of paper, effectively, obviously probably in digital form these days, when you you get paid a dividend. So, so is it that? And how do they handle sort of other bits like interest from your savings accounts? Yeah, well, I mean, it's in terms of dividends and things, they they, they create that. So the accountant Ah, uh, so you're using the same accountant for your limited company and your oh, yeah. self-assessment. Yeah. Ah, that's cheating. Yeah. For, <laughs> well, for me, it wouldn't make sense. So, and, that, and that's pretty much, you know, goes back to, you, you know, my first point is that for me, I want that uh, consistency and I want to... But and essentially ensure that the accountant is taking that responsibility as well. So if they are dealing with all of our accounts, which they are, so they're dealing with both mine, my wife's our property, and so on, that actually they have all the information that they need. And if only I had savings that were generating income, Simon, I could answer that question. But well, the, you you will be. I mean, even if you've got just a few pounds in the the bank over a year. Well, maybe not a few pounds, but maybe a thousand or two thousand. You'll, you'll get a few pence of interest if it's in a savings account. I'll refer and the. Strictly speaking, that should be declared. I, I refer the honourable gentleman to my previous point, which is that, <laughs> that 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 is not a challenge in in our current predicament. So there is more money out than comes in for us. So there is no such thing as interest. However, of course, you know, with with shares uh, and stuff like that, you know. When, at the end of the tax year, should that happen? Well, when it happens, yeah, we'll obviously declare what needs to be declared. Yeah, although I, I think in, in shares, you you went for a, a Vanguard ISA, didn't you? That's yes. Certainly I did. Yeah. So so actually, you don't have to declare those because yeah. they're, they're in that tax free wrapper. The only other thing I was thinking, and it's funny, I was reading about this the other day, was that even so, the the HMRC even say that even if you're employed as a PAYE, if you if you earn over a hundred thousand, that you should still I think I think they word it as still consider, but you should still potentially do a self assessment tax return. Don't ask me why I can't remember that element, but but that was just interesting to show that, yeah, that you know the tax man, tax people. I think we should call them now, because um, I'm, I'm sure the, the the tax women are as uh, you know as a, as aggressive in in chasing down tax as the men. I did wonder where you were going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> The question, the final question I've got for you before we wrap up today was just, I suppose for me, you know, we can get into a lot more detail on this, but but we don't have the time today. But in terms of the time it takes you, given that you've been doing it for 20 years, like how, how much time does it take you to complete this on an annual basis? 
so I've got relatively used to the kind of information I need. So for example, whenever I make a charitable gift, I will save a copy of that receipt into my tax folder for that year so that I, I have a record of it. So I, I know that it's going to be there when I'm collecting to the gift aid. I know where I need to go now to download the statements for interest payments. I have Patma, of course, which allows me to collect together all of my property details and property finances. And I do that monthly. So I update that up every month, keep those records nice and up to date. So at the end of the tax year, all I have to do is press a button to give me those figures. So to actually bring all of this together into a tax return, which I should really, really do before January. But anyway, we'll park that for the moment. It generally takes um, a day, I would say, maybe a bit less. So this weekend, I did it in a number of sittings over the weekend. But I think the total was was about a working day. And it's not 100% finished. I've got a couple of things I just need to double check. So by the time I've totally finished it, maybe it'll be a day and a half. So so it's not it's not masses of work. Of course, keeping the, the records throughout the year has taken a, a little bit of extra work. But I mean, in the case of the property, for example, you have to do that work anyway, putting together your spreadsheet. So you're you're still doing doing work. So how, how long does it take you to prepare stuff for your accountant? Well, for the per- for the, the the only thing I really prepare, I would say the personal for the personal tax returns on the properties. And I would say never more than two hours because yeah because it's fairly straightforward because i've done the spreadsheet once essentially it just captures all of the costs so obviously your rental revenues and then your ongoing costs in terms of agent fees and then to be honest the time taken is just to grab any of the invoices that for costs associated to those properties which as they come you know just get, get put into the year's tax folder and so they're all there so typically it's it's all done it is it's still a bane for me for that uh, for that two hours. I still detest doing it. And and just your day and a half does that include the submission itself? Yes, yes. So that's that's collecting together the figures, putting a few of them into some temporary spreadsheets to to just do bits of extra stuff here and there, and actually logging into the website, going through the HMRC form, selecting what's included, what's not included, rereading bits and pieces that I've forgotten, checking all of that putting in all the figures, going through the calculations, which the, the website does for you, and then sort of double-checking them and getting a copy of the, the sort of finished form, which I will then reread and make sure that there doesn't seem to be anything wrong. I will actually also, these days, compare it side-by-side side to my form from the previous year, just to make sure that, that nothing seems particularly out of place or, or different from, from the last year that, that might seem odd. And yes, all of that will, will take something in the region of, of a day and a half this, this particular year. And in actual fact, this particular year is slightly harder than normal because I've had a, a capital gain as well. As we've spoken about previously, I sold a, a property a little while ago and there was a, a capital gain to be had there. And it had to be declared within 30 days of the property sale and the tax paid. And that that's sort of all handled and done. But then in your self-assessment at the end of the year, you have to declare it again and that actually took me quite a while to to read up on and work out how that needed to be included and what details needed to be included there and, and referencing back to the the previous submission and tax payment of the capital gains tax in the uh, at the point of sale. 
So, so yeah, a, a, a day and a half this year, perhaps without the capital gains tax complications, perhaps it would be a bit quicker in, in previous years. I can't actually remember. So, so we've got two camps here. There might be a third that we're unaware of. But if, depending on your camp, do feel free to tweet us at biz of property. That's B-I-Z of property on Twitter. And let us know which camp you're in. Would you rather free up your time and do it yourself uh, or do it yourself? And for what reasons? And Simon and I have both given ours. Be really interested to hear yours and why why you decided to go your route. So please do join the conversation at Twitter. Yeah, please do. I look forward to hearing from you, as long as it's not hate mail about the fact that I like looking through my tax return every year. <laughs> maybe, maybe it could be some consolation mail or, or some, some, yeah, I, I don't know. Anyway, um, please do get in touch. And please do also let uh, a friend or two know about this podcast and how much you enjoy listening to it. We, we all very much appreciate it. Show notes, as ever, can be found at thebusinessofproperty.com. And Stuart and I will talk to you again next week.